Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. For four years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we like to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from leaders in the industry. Each week, of course, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country. We track all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. The 2024 market is showing some really fascinating signals already. Uh, So if you need to communicate about this market to your clients, your buyers and sellers, go to altosresearch.com. Book a free consult with our team. Let's review your market and how you can use market data in your business. And as we get to the show, I've got the perfect guest today. Uh, He needs no introduction to this audience, uh, but I'll give a little anyway. Logan Motoshami. Logan is the lead analyst and my colleague at HousingWire. He is a prolific commentator on all the different aspects of the real estate market. He's great on stage and has a really strong view of what comes next in housing. So we're going to talk about all those things today. This is Logan's, th- I think, third third visit to the Top of Mind podcast, right? Yeah, third time. So Logan, welcome. And as always, uh, thanks for joining me. It is a pleasure to be here. What another year we had to go through in 2023. Yes, I want to talk about what we just went through, uh, and especially things like what surprised us, and then also setting up our conversation about what's coming in 2024. Um, before we dive into market stuff, let, talk, talk to me first about your role as lead analyst at HousingWire. What, what's, uh, what's exciting? What are we working on? What, what should people know about? Well, I, I, I think my role got a lot more fun for me when you came aboard because you know, the it was actually a year ago where I'm like, I want to get this tracker started right away. <laughs> Just let me get access to the data. And for me, it's so much fun because, you know, I, I've had this always this forward-looking housing data model, but the only thing I didn't have is weekly inventory. So as soon as, you know, I, I was able to get access to this, you know, part of this uh, tracker that we always write every week at <clears throat> is to kind of put all these different variables in together. But more of on the economic side, where bond yields, the 10-year yield, mortgage rates, economic data, that really matters to, to my work. And then we could incorporate it to weekly inventory data, new listings data, price cut percentages, and put it together. And it, it worked flawlessly this year. You know, as everybody was into the well, prices, follow volume, we had the biggest home sale crash ever last year, and then the market dynamics changed, and then it was six months later when people figured out the market change. And this way we could create a weekly tracker and just keep up and date because it's not so much just the housing market for me. It's the economic cycle. That's primary what I work off of. So keep everyone informed all the time, not just housing, but the labor market, the Fed, the 10-year yield, these things to give people an idea to look ahead, not backwards or at here, you know, look ahead, give people an idea. So nobody could say they missed it. It's kind of our thing. (laughs) Yeah, and that housing market tracker that you do each week, uh, you and Sarah Wheeler work on, and that, like getting that out each week is is really tremendous. And so, um, let's let's talk about that for a second. You, um, uh, you 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 follow labor market, you follow the ten year. Um, in 2023, one of the messages was like, you know, the Fed's not going to stop until the labor market breaks. Yes. And, and and I don't believe this is the Fed pivot that we're seeing right now. I think to me, I I have channels on the 10-year yields every year. And the 10-year yield got to a level where I didn't think it should break under. And I kind of, for this year, I thought, how do I connect with the consumer and people reading? You have to bring off Gandalf the Grey because all he said is, you shall not pass. So hopefully I was saying, we're not going to break under this 3.37 until the labor market breaks. And that's jobless claims breaking above a certain level. 
So it got pretty hectic there early on. We tested that level eight times. The banking crisis, of course, changed some things for housing. When that occurred, the spreads actually got worse. So we added another quarter to half a percent higher rates just because of that. But then the 10-year yield kind of did what it what I thought it should do, just kind of be in a range. It's just the last move from four and a quarter to five percent that was so unnecessary. And there was a lot of market dynamics that were happening there, and the Fed got very uh, uh, hawkish when they didn't need to be. But when I talk about the Fed pivoting, that is not being, you know, stopping the rate height uh, rate height cycle. It's changing everything to be more proactive for the economy, right? And that's always based on jobless claims breaking. So right now, the Fed overhiked. The real yields are very restrictive. Before the 10-year yield actually broke off, you know, Williams, the Fed president in New York, was saying, hey, listen, we're going to have to maybe cut rates, you know, next year if the growth rate of inflation. So what they're doing right now is basically what they should be doing. They're not, they're not pivoting. They're just, we are very restrictive. And as Powell said in the last presser, we got really restrictive, especially with a 10-year yield up to 5% and Fed funds rate. So they're just kind of moderating that. That's what I don't call a pivot. I mean, the history of economic cycles going back to you know m- many decades, every single time the market believes the Fed has done, the 10-year yield rallies and mortgage rates rally. So it's pretty much doing what it normally should do, maybe outside of 1978. 78 was the last time that didn't happen. But here, looks perfectly normal. The growth rate of inflation is falling. The Fed is done hiking. Bond yields rally well before the first uh, Fed rate cut happens. So when you say uh, the Fed hasn't pivoted, you don't mean that like the market is, is, is pricing in like four to six rate cuts next year. You, you don't think, you're not discounting that. You're saying the Fed is is not yet moving into a mode of active uh, support of the economy. Is that what you mean? Yeah. They, yeah. They are, they are still very restrictive. They could cut rates three times in the next meeting, and they'll still be very restrictive because the growth rate of inflation is falling and the disinflation factors are still kicking out there for the next six to 12 months. So they are still very restrictive. They're trying to like talk this market into a soft landing. Uh, but the bond market did what it, what it normally should do. It just ran right in front of the Fed. And uh, looks it looks pretty normal to me. As long as we're in this range between three point two one percent and four and a quarter on ten year yield, mortgage rates between five point seven five and seven and a quarter. That's that that looks fine. But to me, the pivot was based on okay, that's it. We are full dual mandate. We have to cut rates because the economy gets weaker. That's what a lot of people were expecting because they thought the recession was coming, right? They thought the recession coming twenty twenty two, the recession in twenty twenty three. The labor market was never breaking. The labor market got softer, but it wasn't breaking. Until jobless claims break over 323,000 on the four-week move average, we don't use the R word, right? We're not there yet. And we could sit here and hopefully now everyone could understand why I wasn't a Fed pivot person. I didn't see the labor market data breaking like other people were anticipating. Uh, uh, So the Fed is still restrictive right now. And even if they cut 75 basis points in the next meeting, they're still restricted. So they're just trying to move from one stage to another. And the bond market got ahead of that and looks pretty normal. I personally think the Fed got spooked by the 10-year yield getting up to 5% because they were kind of already restrictive already. And this is why the Fed presidents were talking, wait a second, what's going on? Why are the 10-year yield going up? What's going on? This is not, you know, they didn't want that to happen. So now they just said, forget it. Let's not, let's not rush anything. Let's just move on to the next stage. So far, so good, right? But I don't, I don't consider this a, a a pivot in the traditional sense. All right, that's that's very useful framing for me. Uh, thinking about the Fed as uh, the real pivot is when do they move into active support of the economy and, and and move out of restrictive mode. So that's great. I appreciate that. You mentioned uh, the R word, recession, um, and you know, there's been recession talk, inverted yield curve, et cetera, for like at least 18 months. And in your work over that period, you had your recession model and you said, I have six flags for the recession. Five of them are up. Every single flag is up, except you don't go to the recession talk until the labor market breaks. I mean, here's a good example. The last time my six recession red flags were up were late 2006. The recession didn't happen until you know the later part of 2008. So you could have, you know, be on recessionary watch. But 
to me, a, a recession is the labor market breaking. I know a lot of people have their own labor market data, uh, you know, the, the SOM rule and everything. But to me, I set it in stone. Jobless claims have to break over 323,000 because job openings are abnormally high. The demographics are different. But the key to everything is that household balance sheets in the United States of America look good. They're nothing like what we've seen in the past four decades. And a lot of this is based on the 30-year fixed mortgage, right? Uh, a lot of a lot of debt costs for households are very low just because a lot of people bought a home. They lived in their homes for longer. Their wages keep on increasing higher and higher. Uh, so to have like a, you need like a credit event or something to break the economy. We haven't had that. A lot of people thought the banking crisis was going to be that. But uh, lending hasn't gotten restrictive enough to to bring the economy down. So we're not there yet. Once jobless claims can break over 323,000, I'll get to that area. But we can stay here for a very long time until that happens. Uh, so we're not there yet. So the 10-year yield rising, you know, uh, even getting above four and a quarter, the if we if the economy wasn't growing at five percent in, in in Q3 or jobless claims data fall, we're we're not talking about eight percent mortgage rates. But the economy is growing. You know, people are working, people are spending. Until that breaks, we're still in, a, in the expansion mode. That's why I think it's key for everyone to have their labor cutoff uh, uh, data. Does unemployment rate get five percent or half a percent higher, or jobless claims, or just job openings have to get to a certain level? And then when that happens. And you could break into the recession talk. There's no problem about looking about clues about you know the inverted yield curve. The leading economic index is down like 16 uh, months in a row. But and if the labor market doesn't break, it's not happening, right? And we just had the longest economic and job expansion in history. And 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 people were talking about recessions every seven minutes back then too. Yes. Okay. So jobless claims are still uh, unemployment still very low. Is showing some softening. Some softening. I mean, job openings went from 12 million down to 8.7 million. But I mean, historically, I, I mean, we were just a tad, a little bit over 2 million during the Great Recession. So uh, if you look at a chart of job openings, take a line from 2014, just draw that line up there. At 8.7 million, I would argue we're basically where we should be. With a country that population growth is slowing, right? Productivity isn't exactly booming. You know, we're getting some really good productivity numbers re recently. So it looks pretty normal, right? In that sense, because again, we have a massive generation that's leaving the workforce every day. They need to be replaced. It's a wash, right? So as the boomers leave, millennials, Gen Z, they come in, it's a wash. Demand keeps on growing. The need for labor is much more. And that's that's been so much of my labor economic work post-COVID, right? The, the we're going to get all the jobs back lost to COVID by September of 2022. Job openings are going to get to 10 million. A lot of this is demographically based uh, because robots aren't doing all the jobs. We still need manual labor for so much. And as demand grows, that manual labor still needs to be there. Okay. I've got a bunch of questions. I'm going to come back to the demographics one uh, because uh, we have, a, you have, a, we, we talk about demographics a lot in housing, of course. Um, the, uh, but we talked about the recession watch and the five, six, five of the six flags were up. Um, and so you didn't actually have a recession call going into 2023 because jobless claims were still really well employed. Um, what surprised you in 2023? Did you, were, there, were there things that you got wrong a year ago? The 10-year yield getting above four and a quarter. That four and a quarter was my peak. Uh, seven and a quarter was my peak for mortgage rates. The economy outperforming, 5% GDP growth with falling jobless claims, there it is, right there. And even for someone like myself, like Kevin said, there's no recession. To be able to grow like that and then also get good productivity numbers now, right, and keep jobless claims under 300,000, you know, very good. But to get over four and a quarter, I thought the economy had to like noticeably outperform. It did. Uh, and I think everyone should take a look in the mirror and say, the U.S., economy outperformed all of our expectations, right? Uh, uh, especially after the massive in increase in rates, dealing with inflation. But again, I always harp in people, balance sheets look good. Uh, um, so that to me, getting four and a quarter to 5% was not part of the forecast. And then also the second thing was when I looked at mortgage rates getting above seven and a quarter percent, I was looking for weekly active inventory, uh, uh, that we have uh, uh, every single week. I was looking for that to grow between eleven to seventeen thousand. 
you know, the slope of the curve was going to be slow, but higher mortgage rates, inventory can grow in that environment. Never had that once. And I kept on harping on that week after week after week. I'm looking for, I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for this. Never happened. There was another thing I got wrong. I think we 95, 9,600 was the, was the, was the highest week to week. We never got between 11 and 17,000. And also I always think that like one of the data lines that gets no attention is that the price cut percentages while mortgage rates were going up to 8% was traditionally 4% below 2022 levels the entire time. And that, all, that all, to me all falls back to what happened after November 9th in 2022. The, the housing market dynamic shifted. We no longer had a waterfall crash in sales. Basically, we've stabilized. We haven't gone anywhere. We're higher, lower, around that 4 million number. And you could see how the housing data <laughs> looks like with data stabilizing. And I think that to me was, that, that should have shocked everyone that even with mortgage rates going to 8%, the inventory growth levels did not hit what I thought they should hit, and the price cut percentages were 4% below uh, 2022 levels during that period. That is terrific. So the things let's, re- let's review the things Logan got wrong in 2023. Uh, uh, the 10-year went higher than, than uh, expected, and that was really because the economy outperformed what anybody expected. Uh, and therefore, the mortgage rate, the 30-year mortgage rate went higher than than expected. Uh, but meanwhile, inventory didn't climb nearly as much as expected. Uh, and we didn't have price cuts as much as we as we expected. They're like like the market, the housing market side stayed stronger the, the whole year. Not one week. Not one week. One week. I was I, I I was just looking for a few weeks. I was just looking for a few weeks, and I kept on writing it on the tracker. I'm just waiting for this to happen, and then and then by the time we were getting toward the fall, I was like, it's not gonna it's not gonna happen, boy. It's really not. It's, it's, not, it's not gonna happen. Now inventory rose uh, late in the year, in you know October, November, but it still never had a big gain uh, week of inventory. The slope of the curve was so slow, you know, and uh, I, I'm I'm such a pro supply person that I was just like, come on, come on, just give me one or two weeks, something, and it never happened. That was a big zero the entire year, and even while we got to eight percent, we did get we get we did get higher growth, but nothing, nothing to the levels that I thought we should have. And I'm not, I set a kind of a low bar too. 11 to 17,000 on a weekly active listings with rates at above seven a quarter is not asking for much. But, you know, again, the slope of the inventory curve in 2023 looks so much different than the uh, abnormal year of 2022. And that's one of the things I try to get people to focus on. 2022 will go down in history as the craziest year in housing ever. It's not like 2008 or COVID. Those were very, you could see what was going on. There was so much drama happening in 2022 because of, it was like a Shakespeare play. Four different stages were happening that it's just too fast. And and oddly enough, toward the end of 2022, the home sales crashed so much that we were actually starting the stabilization period. And we can actually see it with the new home sales sector. Uh, new home sales grew double digits year over year. Housing starts beat estimates uh, this morning. So it, it's just too wild. I mean, unless you track housing religiously, it's just crazy. You're not, you're going to get completely lost with everything because every headline is not going to be uh, coherently right with the data. But yeah, yeah. When I, when I think of 2023, the 10 year yield breaking above four and a quarter, the, uh, the growth rate of inventory not happening and the price cut percentages basically standing still during that entire time. No basic trying to catch up to 2022 levels. Not at all. All right. So uh, then the defining characteristic of the 2023 housing market was this lack of sellers. Fewer sellers uh, come into market, uh, fewer listings, fewer new listings. What happens to sellers in 2024? We should get more. We sh- I, I, I'm looking at that event after July of 2022 when rates got past uh, uh, 6%. We were already trending at the lowest levels ever anyway, and then we took a noticeably another leg lower. But what I what I was looking at the new listings data, especially through spring, because I always think people have to realize there's convergence in the data early and late. It's really the spring that you see this massive gap between 2021 and 2022 levels. That's because most sellers are buyers. Guess what? They're not buying with rates this high. 
we should be able to grow new listings data and grow sales together uh, as, as rates fall. There should be more buyers into the mix. We got to a level that was historically low, but the entire time in 2022, no matter how crazy rates got, we never took another leg lower. That to me, by, by, I remember going on CNBC kind of in the middle of the year and say, listen, I think this is the bottom of new listings because we're, in, we're even with higher mortgage rates, we're not seeing another leg lower. It's been pretty stable. I mean, the only hectic times comes after like Labor Day or school starting up. You get these wild weekly moves. But outside of that, it was remarkably stable and it looks like it's forming a bottom. So we should get more sellers that are buyers. Um, again, any kind of inventory stress, you know, inventory will go straight vertical, right? You know, it was just not, it, we, 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 we've never seen stress in the data line for three years. That's why I've always like these people, Airbnb crash or this crash or that. Nothing was in the data for three years and it got like even worse in terms of the lack of uh, uh, listings. So I am hoping for more new listings, more sales, get a more functioning marketplace and try to work our way back to 2021 and 2022 levels, which were the lowest levels ever. But uh, again, it's all to me, housing moves around the 10-year yield and mortgage rates. So we'll see how the spring goes, but it's we're already seeing almost like a carbon copy of what happened last year at this time when rates fell to the kind of the forward-looking data. But we we really want to see new listings grow. I was, you know, I was, I was waiting to see some year-over-year growth numbers, but I don't care so much about the the last you know eight to twelve weeks. I want to see spring. I want to see that gap between spring in 2021 and 2022 grow, and then get more sellers that are buyers and get get a more functioning housing market. Yeah. Okay. And I think why I agree with you there, and and, and I think there's the data is already showing year over year uh, new listings gains and new year over year uh, new contracts. So we could see the sales kicking up. And it is right. It's December. You know. So we want to see that in spring too. There could be some noise in the data, but it sure looks like to me it's like it started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like it, I, I I cannot stress how remarkable stable the new listings data was for a while there. Didn't matter what rates were doing. It just did its thing. And I was like, that looks like a bottom thing. Cause like the last thing we wanted to see is another leg lower in new listings data. That just means you have a lack of sellers, a lack of buyers. Now you're getting some confidence. So that's, that's what I'm hoping for. But I really want to see that grow in the spring, right? I want to see that gap between 2021 and 2022 data come together. And I think you, I think you said this uh, real quick and I want to just flag it, which is, uh, if there's some big economic event, uh, some big crisis, then you think you're gonna, we're going to see, uh, we would see a spike in, in new listings and sellers? You, you, need, you need something to force sellers to, I mean, and, and again, the, uh, a jobless claims breaking over 323,000, then at least you could start the conversation that people will lose their job. There's a whole different talk we'd have to have when that happens. That didn't occur. The Airbnb crash didn't happen, of course. There's nothing in the data that would warrant that. So uh, you need some kind of event. We just, the, the economy is still intact and expanding. Again, people don't rush to sell their homes to be homeless. This is not a normal thing to happen. So people are doing well. They just do their normal things. And uh, uh, it's not a liquid market anyway. So uh, in this case, uh, uh, the trend has been here for a very long time. For many, many years, you just go with it, Right. Uh, and when we've seen inventory growth, higher rates, weakness in demand, days on markets grow, inventory can, can grow in that light. But outside of that, we haven't seen anything of stress uh, uh, for a very long time. Do you, uh, let's talk about prices, home prices. Um, uh, the home prices gained in 20, this year, two, three, four, five percent, depending on your measure, um, year over year home price gains. Did that surprise you? That didn't surprise me after rates went lower. What did surprise me after November 9th, if mortgage rates went lower and forward-looking demand got better, then it just but we we were basically doing what we did in 2013, 14, and 2018 and 19. Rates go lower, demand picks up, uh, inventory stabilized, growth uh, price growth rises. That's what happened back then. This is what happened now. I think because home sales crashed so much that people just assume prices have to crash. But then you have to look at the inventory data and then the new listings and price cuts and the market stabilized and it just took people like four, five, six months to catch on to that. So that didn't uh, surprise me. But 
again, how the market reacted when rates got to 8% to me still surprised me because it was remarkably stable with mortgage rates getting up to 8%. So that to me just shows that on the sales side, we bottomed out. We don't really have any kind of stress sellers and people are just taking their time. So uh, that to me surprised me more than home prices getting in. Inventory is low, demand rising. Don't make it any more complicated than that, right? That's how supply and demand economic works. Where we saw price declines in 2022, hold Nelly. We saw existing home sales fall, collapse. We saw the slope of the inventory uh, increase go up. We saw price cut percentages uh, go up. That all changed after November 9th. So that that didn't surprise me. But again, today, I, I just I thought the market was very stable considering that rates went up to 8% and home prices had already got back to uh, all-time highs. For sure. Okay. So then what are you looking at for home prices in 2024 based on what we can see now? Same thing. Same thing. Same playbook. We're, we're almost running the same playbook as we were doing last year. Mortgage rates fall. Forward-looking purchase application data gets better. Inventory is very stable. It's not rising. Price cut percentages aren't going anywhere. So in the next four to five months, you know, January to uh, uh, June, if that continues, it's literally almost going to look like the same thing in 2023, right? Because we're going to get better demand going into the spring season, right? Inventory is doing its seasonal bottom. The one thing that I don't want to see happen is I don't want inventory to bottom out in March and April, right? That's the abnormality. That's the thing that's driving me crazy. Usually it's what, January and, and maybe, maybe February, but we're getting the seasonal bottom way out there. And again, my argument has always been that every year after COVID, we have this late run in demand, right? 2020 was the COVID-19 makeup demand. That's That, that could be explained. 2021 was abnormal. We had volume mortgage growth that never happens at the end of the year. Last year, rates fell, demand picked up. Here, Rates fell, demand's picking up. It's happening later in the year. So it is more imperative to track the forward-looking data now more than anything because this can continue for some time. And then, you know, we'll see this play out in the existing home sales reports five, six months from now. So uh, it, to me, it's just right now we're, we're, we're a carbon copy of what happened at the end of last year and we just go with it. And if that's still the case, that's what prices are, 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 are going to do. It's going to look pretty much the same. But it looks similar. So another two to five percent gain. Yeah. The only way I think you go to the opposite size on each is that a job loss recession happens and we have a surge of inventory somewhere and rates are still too high to offset that. That's why I always have that 323,000 jobless claims. When that breaks, we can have another discussion. But as of now, that's not the case. Or mortgage rates go lower faster and inventory doesn't, you know, uh, we, we don't get enough new listings. Inventory is low. And then we get the too many people chasing too few homes and price growth grows faster. Uh, don't want that to happen at all. That's why I want inventory growth to be normal and get it up in January and February and get get a buffer, right? If we get more inventory, we have some some kind of buffer to work off of. Uh, uh, and just we're, we're at such low levels that we don't really have much of a buffer. And think about it, 157 million people were working, 335 million population. It's not a lot of homes out there for that group. Not a lot of homes. All right. Uh, let's shift gears. So that's really great. We have a nice view of what happened in 2023. We have your view of 2024. I think we're pretty well aligned on a lot of those things. Um, we look at a lot of the same data, so that's good news <laughs> that we draw those similar conclusions. But uh, let's talk about uh, demographics. And in particular, over the last decade or so, you've been very vocal about the millennial boom in housing as a 2024 uh, phenomenon, like through 2024, uh, we've got millennials who are in their prime earning and home buying years going to drive demand. Um, and it sure feels like that played out uh, through the last few years. Um, it's now 2024. Uh, it doesn't feel to me like that, that de demographic uh, boom has receded, but, um, but, but tell me, Tell me, A, what, what's, what, what are you thinking about that, that frame, that 2024 framework, now that it's 2024? And then uh, B, what comes next? 
2008 to 2019 would have the weakest housing recovery ever. Household formation has to work itself up. So very simple. We rent, we date, we mate, we get married. Three and a half years after marriage, we have kids. We're going to have a lot of people in their 30s, you know, in years 2020 to 2024. So existing home sales can get to 6.2 million and above during this five-year period, not before. So that occurred, except home prices escalated out of control. And guess who finances 90% of their uh, home purchases? Millennials. So years 2020 to 2024 got tainted by the collapse in demand because home prices escalated out of control that in a sense, you could actually extend that period uh, a year or two just because if rates fall again, those people that were looking to buy could actually come into the marketplace and create uh, a little bit more demand that I would have uh, anticipated. If we ju- if we didn't have home prices escalate out of control or rates get too low or anything, if it just kept normal, we'd have a much different conversation, but that wasn't the case. Home prices escalated out of control, inventory broke. I, to me, we're missing 4.2 to 4.7 million home buyers. Uh, and that's when you have the biggest home sale crash ever recorded in history and you don't really grow sales much in 2024. They're missing lower rates. Those that are first-time home buyers finance 90% plus, they could come back into the marketplace. That will give you a little bit more stable demand that maybe at the end of 2024 would not occur. So I'm really looking to see how much we grow sales if rates keep on going lower. Uh, and, and then maybe I could kick it the year out another year just because you know uh, we, we, sh- we should have a lot more sales. We did it because prices went out of the control and mortgage rates getting to 7 to 8% also destroyed a lot of this for the younger home buyers. Of course, those that are 58 and over, they finance less than 50% of their uh, home buying. So uh, uh, baby boomers went again, right? They don't have the kids to compete against as much so they can do what they want. Uh, but for the younger generation, this is why this is why I always say the housing economic policy we have here is almost like a COVID-19 policy. We wanted people to stay in their homes. We didn't want young people to buy homes or, or move or do anything. So we kept everyone in, right? Inventory didn't go out of control, but everyone's good with their mortgage, right? The best hedge against inflation is a 30-year mortgage. But the best hedge against the Federal Reserve was your 30-year mortgage, right? They could raise short-term rates all they want. Or you're, you're protected. So that, to me throws a huge wrench into everything about years 2020 to 2024. So I got to see how much sales can grow in 2024. And then, you know, 2025, we still are going to probably have some missing demand that should have been in this five-year uh, period. Okay. So the the craziness, the pandemic craziness delayed some of the 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 demographic, the generational demand. So we actually still have tailwinds, demand tailwinds coming for in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, uh, home sales going from six and a half million in January of 2022 down to four million is the biggest home sale crash ever recorded in history. A lot of buyers were young, and you know when rates go up, they get impacted. So uh, they're not there, right? And then of course the sellers that are buyers are they're not there. So things got pretty wild. You have to adjust to that wild period, and I and I just think all economic data has these wild high velocity swings. And then they eventually balance out, right? Over time, they balance out. So they're crazy to the upside, crazy to the downside. And then eventually over time, they smooth out. And we're, we're, we're trying to start that process of smoothing out data for housing, uh, which means that we should be able to grow sales. But I, I need to see how much we grow sales in 2024 because we could have another year added onto that because there's so many people that just didn't bought homes when they should have uh, in 2022 and 2023. Right, right, right. Okay, um, and I, I hadn't, um, I hadn't heard your comment about four point two to four point seven million buyers that didn't basically didn't get a chance to buy their home yet. Is that what you're thinking in that period? Yeah, I mean, you're 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 missing you're missing to go from you know over six point two million existing home sales down to four million for a kind of a two year process, right? Uh, uh, you take existing home sales, new home sales, you put it together. We had such a crash in demand. That you got to smooth that out, and we have some. It's not just first-time home buyers, move-up buyers, move-down buyers. There's, there's, there are buyers that are missing that would not have had this big collapse. Let's just assume home prices grew one to three percent, you know, from years twenty to twenty twenty-four. Rates stayed between three and a half to four and a half percent. We would have had more stable demand, more, you know, roughly. But we've had this big swings up and down, 
and we have these big swings in home prices and big swings in mortgage rates, that really impacted demand in the biggest fashion ever. So that has to, you know, eventually it smoothed itself out. Uh, I don't think these are lifelong renters, right? Dual household incomes, when rates get a certain level, they buy. And we've always seen that in the data. After after qualified mortgage, after 2010, you know, whenever rates fall, demand picks up. We're seeing it again right now. We've seen uh, f- uh, five weeks of uh, positive growth. So that'll eventually hit the sales data line. So until that breaks for me, that lower rates don't create a higher demand, I'm still thinking we're we're missing a couple million home buyers right now. Uh, I I, uh, I appreciate that. I think that's really like there's something there, um, and we can see it very quickly as soon as as soon as rates drops, we can see that the transactions pick up. I mean, eight even from eight to seven and a quarter. I mean, it didn't take much. I think that's the confusing thing. People see see that nominal seven and a half percent, and they think well, nobody's going to buy, and then boy, forward looking data calls it every single time, right? Every time rates fall in a noticeable fashion, demand picks up. So they're there. They're just waiting. Yeah. And my, my, uh, my view on that is that, is, is that consumers are more sensitive to changes in rates than the absolute level, right? The absolute level, yeah. If you're at eight, seven and a quarter looks great. Um, so uh, it, it brings up um, another thing, and I think we disagree on this. So let me lay this out here and, and let's get this. So this is um, my, part of my view of the, the dramatically few uh, home sales in 2023. Uh, was a was that we are in a supply constrained market. We are in a, we have more buyers than sellers, and so one of the reasons we had few home sales. Obviously, demand is low, uh, but but if there was more homes to buy uh, at the current prices at the current rates, we would have more transactions, um, and and so I call that a supply constrained market. Uh, and so when I watch inventory starting to rise, new sellers starting to rise, I start to see, aha, we can have more transactions. But I think you, uh, maybe it was on Twitter or something where you said, nope, I disagree with that, Mike. So lay it on me. Yes. So I have a completely different uh, mindset on this. Back in the previous expansion, right, people always said, we can't grow sales because there's no homes to buy. So all of a sudden, inventory collapses and we have more sales than any period of time in the last decade. And that was 2020. Then inventory goes even lower in 2021 and sales grow even more. So I think this to me, and this is actually one of the questions I get when I, when I tour the country, people ask me, how did home sales grow so much in 2020 and 2021 when there was no homes to buy? And when I, when I look at it in this way, I think of it as, a buyer and a seller. A seller lists their house. They get an offer right away. The days on market back in 2011 were 105 days. It used to take a lot longer to do mortgages. I mean, sometimes they would take 30 to 45 to even 60 days to do mortgages. We have become more prolific in closing transactions in America. So the days on market have naturally gone down by itself. So when you get more demand, faster demand, days on market go lower. But even with the biggest crash in home sales that ever, uh, we get the NAR data that I'm that I'm using and quoting here. We're we got a little bit above thirty days, even with that. So we can close mortgage transactions within seven to eight business days now, right? It doesn't take a, a month or two. So sellers or buyers, that's inventory there. It just doesn't catch up to the total active listings data. So we can grow sales when demand picks up. Right, and I think that's where people were were trained to think that while well, demand was low in the previous expansion because there were, there was no homes to buy. I never agreed with that. I, that was one of my fighting points for a long time. But here, inventory broke to all time lows and sales took off. And I, I look at it as that that buyer seller transaction, the days on market, things close faster. You don't get to be part of that active inventory. Right, that's the lower mortgage rates. Uh, do not create higher inventory. People are waiting for that active inventory data to really take off. And with lower rates, it just never occurs. We close things faster. We can grow sales, uh, but uh, we can't grow inventory in that fashion unless we have a a bigger surge of new listings coming on uh, to outstrip the uh, demand. Right, right, right. Okay. So yeah, there is a distinction that often gets lost between uh, inventory and transaction volume. 
like inventory are the homes that are unsold. Uh, and, and so you can, we can buy everything on the market and have very few low selection of available inventory because we've bought everything. Yes. And I mean, this is the argument I have with Sarah all the time on our mortgage rate lockdown. You know, uh, we were breaking to all time lows toward the end of, uh, 2021 and 20 or early 2022 and active listings and home sales were so much to over two and a half million higher, uh, back then. Uh, so how is that possible? Sellers are buyers, transactions closed. They don't get part of the active inventory. You can, you can grow sales, but it's harder to grow inventory in that environment where people say there's no homes to buy. Well, they were saying that in the previous decade. Then all of a sudden sales take off and inventory goes lower. That confuses people. That's like the number one confused. It doesn't matter if it's real estate, just stock traders, mortgage people. They always go, how did we get all these sales when inventory was so low? Buyers and sellers, transaction done. Doesn't get part of that inventory if it's done faster. Days on market has been falling for a very long time. We close trans. We're more efficient in closing a transaction now than any other time in history. That plays a role into this. Yeah. Um, do you think there is a, is there a scenario where we ever go back to the old normal of available inventory? Wait, so we're at whatever, 540,000 single family homes on the market right now at the end of December. Uh Eight years ago, it was like a million at this time. Uh, so is there a scenario where we go back there? The, the one way I thought you could get back to 2019 is if demand kept on crashing, right? If demand kept on crashing and days on markets grow, the only thing is that, to me, November 9th changed that equation, right? The, the 10-year yield peaked, mortgage rates were growing lower, so the forward looking got better. So unless demand crashes and days on market grow, you're going to need inventory from another source. We're talking about unoccupied supply. The builders aren't going to help you out here, right? They're going to manage their supply. So the baby boomers, right? Eventually, death. There, none of us are Dorian Gray, I say. Like no country has a Dorian Gray labor market. None of us, we, none of us take our homes to the grave with us. And toward the end of this decade, they will die. What their children do with their homes, we'll see. But... That is one way to break this log jam because uh, if we want to go back to 1982 using the NAR data, two to two and a half million was the active inventory on their side. But right now we're, we're so low. I mean, we got to as low as 240,000 in March of 2022, Altos data. And to get back there, you know, you have to get something. Um, maybe if you force investors to sell all their properties or something, then you're pitting renters versus buyers, right? You know, a lot, a lot of this discussion with the hedge funds, you know, uh, they, they, we're going to force them to sell. Well, guess what? You're kicking a renter out because you don't believe uh, a, a, an American family should rent a single family home. So you kick them out, put that in the market. I don't think that's, they're not the big pool of inventory uh, unless you get some tax policy changes that uh, maybe be favorable, uh, something like that. But as we are right now, in, a, in the current state, you, you need demand to be weaker, right? And days on market to grow, to, to, to get back up there. Uh, and, and demand being stable or growing, it just makes it harder, right? Uh, if home sales, if, I, if, my, if my whole theory that home sales, basically, it's really rare to get under 4 million after 1996, if that failed and home sales got down to 2 million, right? Maybe that could get you back up there just because of weakness in demand. Nobody's buying these, these homes have to come on. But it's just not, it just wasn't the case. And new listings data just got worse, you know, at the second half of 2022 and 2023. So it's just hard to get back up there, especially with stable demand. So, and one thing that could make demand go lower would be higher rates for longer. Yes. And I, 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 I don't believe we're, we're that country. I don't believe we're that century. I think we, we had a global, if we look at the 21st century before COVID, it is, was really hard to even keep core inflation above 2% for a very long period of time. So to have higher rates for longer, you're going to need inflation to keep up, right? Uh, you, need, you can't have the growth rate. Of, I mean, the history of global pandemics are they're very inflationary, and then the disinflation happened. So here we are being told by Larry Summers and a bunch of other people that we have to create a job loss recession, right? You, Americans, 10% unemployment rates for one year, 7.5% unemployment rates for two years, 6% for five. No, it looks like a global pandemic. 
and the growth rate of inflation fell, and it fell with unemployment rates at 3.7%. The economy grew above trend. Goodbye, Larry Summers. Fed model on that, goodbye. <laughs> it didn't work, right? So see ya. Uh, but uh, I, I, I just don't, I, I don't think we could replicate the 1970s. I mean, we would need like an oil, like I, I thought about this, like what do I, what, what could possibly happen? Oil shock, unbelievable. Like oil prices have to get like to $450 to get the same kind of 1970s inflation. And then diesel prices, diesel prices take off and that impacts food prices a lot, right? Because that's how they transfer their food. And because that headline inflation grows, core maybe could grow with it because basically wages have to catch up to inflation, right? So we need wages and inflation to grow together to stay higher for longer in a meaningful way that we saw in the 1970s. Uh, I just, I just don't, th- I, I just don't think the world is there. I think once the global pandemic is fully over, the growth rate of inflation should fall as it did, and it's really to get, it's really hard to get double digit, you know, mortgage rates if the growth rate of inflation is, you know, running at two to three percent. All right. Well, I can't say that uh, it makes me sad to see Larry Summers absolutely backtracking on his <laughs> his statements about the labor market uh so that's i like i, I will take that as a as a um uh like I, I appreciate your take there um so uh if there is a difficult to imagine a world where we destroy demand housing demand like higher for longer is hard to imagine uh um are we facing a crisis over the next decade of home prices that don't crash? Like, is that the crisis that we're facing? Uh, chronic unaffordability? We have been in that crisis for a while. And I, when, I, when I think of the US, I always like to show people the charts of Canada, Switzerland, you know, New Zealand, all these other countries uh, had home prices accelerate so out of control versus their per capita income. And my biggest fear was always this happening here, right? And the the best way to deal with inflation is not by demand destruction, is by supply, right? So if you if you, demand destruction is a very short term solution, you know, to try to cool something down, that's what the Fed wanted, the housing reset. But as you can see, look what happened: it didn't, supply just didn't really grow in a meaningful way. Um, we have to find ways to grow supply. Now, thankfully, what are the blessings in disguise? has been that the profit margins of the home builders has been able for them to keep single family permits rising and construction going and keeping their uh, backlog done. That's that that'll help to some degree, you know, getting some people into homes. I it's just it's difficult. It was always a difficult problem because the only time we saw accelerated inventory was based on credit markets being completely destroyed, people falling for foreclosures bank, bankruptcy before the job loss. We don't have that. So we just kind of have to grind our way higher. This is why I'm always a pro-supply person. I believe we we can function as a normal market if we can get back to pre-COVID-19. It's just getting there. It's going to be difficult, you know, just because homeowners are doing so well. And people don't understand that. They go, oh, debt's a prison, right? You know, these home. No, they're not. Their cash flows are excellent. Got 13 years of showing this data for 13. What are you people? That's why I always say reading is a good thing. Right. If anybody could read this, I could get a second grade class and they go, oh, that looks good. That looks good. That looks good. And then everyone else, no, they're terrible. They're no. So uh, it, it's a first world problem to have that homeowners are doing really good and they're staying in their house. They're going to be it for a long time. But it's also very difficult for the affordability and uh, a, a very hard problem. Right now, the whole, the whole savagely unhealthy housing market theme was based on this, that Boy, if inventory breaks lower here, this is not the time in history to have active listings near all-time lows, but it did. And too many people chasing too few homes, prices accelerate. Very hard to get prices to come back down, reversion to the mean. That's what stock traders say. It doesn't work like that. This is not a liquid stock market. You know, These homeowners aren't on margin calls You know, having to sell their stock. They live somewhere. They have to go live somewhere else if they sell the house. So completely different dynamics here than, than uh, other sectors of the economy. All right, Logan, that's a fast, fast hour here. Um, We covered a ton of ground, but uh, you do this every day and you've been doing some really great work. So the housing market, the housing wire, housing market tracker, um, you've been doing your, you do a lot of the housing wire daily videos and and podcasts uh, with Sarah Wheeler. What's, where are we pointing people right now? What's the best work you're doing right now? So 
the housing wire tracker comes out every Saturday. It is designed to look forward. So we go 10-year yield, purchase application data, uh, uh, active listings, new listings, price cut percentages. And then we want to talk about the economic cycle itself, right? We've, we format the economic cycle, then go into the housing data. And this tends to look out 30 to 90 days. Uh, Sarah Wheeler and myself, Housing Wire Daily Podcast. We, I think we're the highest ranking we've ever had. We're ranked two uh, in the country for business news. Every, we come twice a week and we're, we're jogging because I, I realize reading's not for everyone and charts aren't for everyone. I try to vocally uh, describe what's going on because the what happens in the economy matters to housing because for me, it's always the 10-year yield runs the housing market. So that matters more than anything else. Uh, uh, if it rises, it rises. Demand gets weaker. If it goes lower, demand gets better. So we work off of that. So the podcast and the tracker are designed to keep everyone informed what's happening this week, but to also look out 30 and 90 days. So we don't do the mistake that a lot of people had when last November 9th, 2022, it was like the market's changing. I just got to wait a few months, but don't miss it. And people missed it. And then here we are again. And I know it's working because the housing crashing crazy people are not talking to me as much anymore. And any anytime one of them opens their mouth, I said, don't make the same mistake like you did last year. I could only teach you guys so much, right? <laughs> so I think it's actually working. I think I'm getting people reading. And I mean, that's my whole thing. If I could get people to read, that'd be great. And then everyone's on the same page. Then everyone follows the right data. And then we just go with it. If it's negative, it's negative. If it's positive, it's positive. It does feel like the, uh, the, the social media doomers are slightly less vocal right now than they have been. Oh, I could, I, I could tell right away. I, 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 it just like when, when rates went down, it's like 99% gone. And one or two people might open one or two people might open their mouths and I go, don't make the same mistake. Don't do it again. I could only teach you guys so much. We created that video for you guys to learn, right? We want you to read and learn. Right? You don't you only live once in this life. Don't go to death with this. And like I've always said, most all doomers are all anti-central bank people. And anti-central bank people are mostly doomers 24-7. That's just who they are. So I enjoy their company. It's been a wonderful 12 years. We've documented the 12 years of the housing bubble boys. Uh, they did it. I knew you guys could do it, but broken clock theory, you guys pulled it off and we documented this whole thing and we're almost going to the 20 point and it's over. Like that was it. It was just a 12 year thing and I'm going to miss you guys. <laughs> um, and we should, I should make sure we note that, that indeed the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, the number two business podcast in the country as of last week, we saw that that ranking came out Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's really great work. Congratulations to you and Sarah Wheeler. Like you guys do excellent, excellent work day in day out. Yeah, and poor Sarah has to deal with me twice a week. So you know, give her kudos. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, so Logan, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Um, your your uh, commentary is exceptional and valuable for me to help form. What I the way I am interpreting the data. My pleasure. It's been it's been a lot of fun this year. Oh, you have no idea how much fun I have looking at that d database you had. It's just like kid in a candy store all the time. And we're on more on for more for 2024. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.